Turn, if you will, to Luke chapter 20. Gospel of Luke chapter 20. We continue to study through this gospel account. We'll be looking this morning at verses 9 down to 19. You know, there are few things as volatile as someone invading your space. Whether it's a new guy in town trying to impress your girlfriend, or a new business that uh, springs up across the street from you in a community that you've served exclusively for decades, suddenly you have a turf war. Who has a right to be here? Who owns this corner of town? As we read through the Gospel of Counts, we see a kind of turf war develop. Almost from the beginning, the Jewish leadership saw Jesus as an interloper into their very traditional, very locked up system of leadership in Israel. And so as his popularity with the people increased, the tensions only got worse. We've come now to chapter 20 where all those tensions uh, begin to come to a head. And there are several incidents here, discussions of the tension between Jesus and the leaders of Israel. So it's not surprising that they accuse him of, or they question him concerning what authority do you have? That's what we looked at last time in the first few verses of this chapter. And it's not surprising that Jesus challenges their assumption that they own the leadership rights in Israel. And that's what we're talking about this morning. Let me read the text. Luke chapter 20, verse 9. Jesus went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the servants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant but that one also they beat and treated shamefully. And he sent away, and, and, and sent away empty-handed. And he sent a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, may this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, what then is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. This is a text controlled by a couple of metaphors the metaphor of the vineyard, and the metaphor of a stone. So let's just divide what uh, we need to learn here into those two categories, things that Jesus 
taught us by talking about the vineyard and things that Jesus teaches us by talking about the stone. That gives us two points. The first one's this. God owns it all. God owns it. God owns it all. Our text begins with Jesus telling a parable about a vineyard. Now, the mention of a vineyard is not just a random subject in ancient Israel. The vineyard was a traditional symbol of the Jewish people. It would be kind of like mentioning a bald eagle in America. That's not just another bird in this land. That's a symbol of the nation. So when Jesus starts talking about a man planted a vineyard, people know he's talking about them. That's that's a symbol, that's a metaphor for their Jewish society. Indeed, the beginning of this parable is almost a direct quote from Isaiah 5, where it talks about the, the Lord planted a vineyard and looked for fruit from that vineyard. Now, clearly, this parable is more of an allegory than most. Most of the parables are not allegories, and you go astray if you try to assign some, uh, some identity to each uh, player in the, in the parable. But here you clearly can assign an identity to the various players. God is the owner of the vineyard. The vineyard is the people of God who enjoy all his promised blessings. The tenants are the leaders of Israel, the, the, the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders. The servants sent by the, the owner uh, are the prophets who came with God's warning for his, for his people. And the son, of course, is the Lord Jesus talking about himself. But unlike Isaiah chapter 5 and that parable of the vineyard, <clears throat> this, uh, this uh, parable is not directed against the people of God. It's spoken to the people, but it's directed against the leaders of the people who are listening in, though they're not being directly addressed, the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, those who had been challenging Jesus' authority. God is telling them what we still need to learn this morning. God owns the vineyard. Think about the picture which Jesus painted for them. Here we see several noteworthy uh, truths. Let me just mention some. First we see that these leaders were a privileged group. God had entrusted to them what he had made for his own pleasure. If we read Psalm 80 and we read Isaiah 5, we read the description of the Lord's care for his ancient people in terms of this metaphor of the vine. You brought a vine out of Egypt, a little sprout out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and you, you cleared all the rocks and you planted it. And, 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 and you built this whole vineyard and you, you built a wine press for, the, for the, the, the grapes that were coming. And you built a tower to protect it. You built a wall around it. You see, from the beginning, God owned this vineyard, which was his people. It was only entrusted to these leaders as tenants. Tenants. And apparently the vineyard had borne some fruit over the centuries. Isaiah rebukes the people for their lack of fruitfulness, but now as Jesus tells it, there is some fruit. And so the owner repeatedly sent his servants uh, uh, to collect his share of the crop. 
That's how it works, you know. If you buy a piece of land and pay to plant a crop and pay some people to work your field, the owner owns the land and he owns the crop and the tenants get paid whatever their fair wages are. But how to farm the land is the owner's decision and what to do with the crop is the owner's prerogative. God owns the vineyard. They are simply privileged tenants. That's us, you know. You and I are privileged too. We read in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and everyone who dwells in it. But think how much of it he's entrusted to you. You have some health. You have some wealth. You eat the fruit of the land every day. You have some ability to work. You have some ability to do other things, make music or some creative thing. You have some brains. You have some education. You have some relationships, some capacity to love, some people who love you. Because of God's providential care, you live like a rich person. Though you're really only a tenant farmer here, entrusted with the wealth of the one who owns everything. Then we see in this parable that when the owner sent his servants to collect his profits, these tenants beat them up and sent them away empty-handed. Three times the owner sent his servants, and three times they were beaten and turned away. What's happening here? What are they thinking? Well, you see, they had become so accustomed to the wealth that they handled every day that they began to think they had as much right to, even more right to it, than the owner. We worked our fingers to the bone for this. We put our in our time in the heat of the day. We were here. Where was the owner? Off doing whatever. These tenants responded to the goodness and the generosity and the trust of the owner by turning on him. They were not content to be tenants. They had convinced themselves they deserved the rights of the owner. Sound familiar? This is the first and greatest sin of mankind. Way back in the garden. We're not content to be God's creatures. Though we're made in his image. Though he's entrusted to us the whole earth. Though he's blessed us beyond measure. No. We want God's place. We want to own things. We want control. We want the glory that belongs to him. We refuse to submit to him. We would rather take him on in a turf war. This is mine. And when he asks for that time or money or ability which he entrusted to us, why, that seems unreasonable. How dare him even ask? It's my life. But Jesus would remind us, no, God owns your life. He owns it. Moving on with the parable, take note of God's grace displayed here. Repeatedly the owner sent his servants and repeatedly they were beaten up and sent away empty-handed. 
So what is he gonna do now? Well, we would expect he would probably send his army now. But instead, God says, I know what I'll do. I'll send my dearly loved son. Perhaps they will respect my son. Now, that's not really how God thinks. He knew what they would do with Jesus. He knows all things before they ever happen. But in this parable, Jesus is trying to communicate to us the tender, patient, compassion of the Lord. He does not deal with us as our sins deserve. He is long-suffering. His mercy kisses his justice. And isn't that how he's dealt with you? How many times have you spurned him? How many times have you resisted his call? How many times have you burned with resentment even while you did what he said? How many times have you forgotten that God owns it all, even your own life? You're just a tenant. Oh, but in this parable, the owner's kindness and long-suffering did not turn the hearts of the tenants back to him. They threw the son out of the vineyard and killed him too, just as these very leaders would in a few days delight to see Jesus taken outside the walls of Jerusalem and hung on a cross. So Jesus poses the question to these people, what should the owner do? And then it appears he answers his own question. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Note the absurdity of their rebellion. The tenants would not honor the son because they wanted his inheritance. We'll kill him and it'll be ours. How absurd. Because of their hostility, they lost both the inheritance they enjoyed and their own lives, their own souls. Why would anybody be so insane as to kill the heir? Because sin is like that, folks. We would rather lose everything than have to submit as a tenant to God as the owner and acknowledge that he owns our lives. And so take note how God responds to such rebellion. Jesus predicts what will happen so that we might understand what God is doing when it does happen. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, there are three levels on which we can understand what he's talking about here. Uh, Fred Craddock is helpful in that regard to help us to see this. First, this helps us understand what happened in 70 AD. The Romans marched in to the city of Jerusalem and utterly destroyed it. The Jews were slaughtered, the survivors scattered to the end of the earth, the temple was torn down, the walls were dismantled, the city was no more. God was doing just what he had predicted. It was because Jesus saw this coming, remember, that he wept over Jerusalem. Secondly, this helps us understand the movement of the gospel 
from the Jews to the Gentiles. God has not reneged on his ancient promises of his covenant, but because of the rejection of Israel, there has been a huge transfer of those promises of the gospel to Gentile recipients. We read about that in the book of Acts, how the gospel went first to the Jews and into the synagogues, and then it spread out and became primarily out among the Gentiles, and that is still the, the case to this day. And third, as Fred Craddock explains, this helps us to understand our own time. For when the tenants of God's vineyard deceive themselves with grand thoughts of place and power, there are always others to whom God can give over this trust. In fact, says Craddock, one thinks of those places in the world that were once the missionary fields for Europe and America Places where now the church is lively and strong in painful contrast to the established and endowed but dead churches of the Western world. You see, God still owns the vineyard to do with it as he pleases. He owns it all. Well, the people were aghast at Jesus' predictions, undoubtedly sensing that this was not going to bode well for them, even though the parable was against their leaders. They exclaimed, may this never be. But Jesus knew that indeed it was going to come to pass, that the scriptures must be fulfilled. And so Jesus then changes metaphors to explain what has been written in the scriptures, which then brings us to our second point about the metaphors of the stone. And that point is this, you can't stop Jesus. You can't stop Jesus. These days, most everyone thinks that Jesus and the kingdom of God are, are not even factors in the history of the world which, which goes on around us. It's absurd to think that he has any place in, in the public arena. Well, that's just what these Jewish leaders thought too. But history tells us they were very wrong. You can't stop Jesus. Jesus explains this by three metaphoric references to himself as a stone. Three references which he draws from three different passages in the Old Testament. It's a rather complex use of the metaphor and Jesus kind of moves from one nuance to another to another in his simple statement here to them. First, you can't stop Jesus because even crucifying him won't get rid of him. They thought that when Pilate put Jesus on the cross, that was the end of the matter. But on the third day, God raised him from the dead. Not just so he could live again, but so that he might continue to advance the kingdom of God. That's what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. He was not abandoned to the grave. God raised this Jesus to life. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And that's just what the scriptures had predicted concerning the Messiah. Specifically in Psalm 18, from which Jesus picks up this stone metaphor here. Remember Psalm 18? It's, what, it's where we find the things uh, that they said as Jesus rode into town on the back of a donkey. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, save. 
Well, Jesus picks up a, a, a text from Psalm 18. The stone the builders rejected would become the cornerstone of God's new temple. You can't stop Jesus. For in him is all the fullness of the Godhead in a body. He is God with us, Emmanuel. Everything God is doing is built on Jesus, on his death and resurrection. He himself said, destroy this temple, his body. And on the third day, I'll raise it up again. The risen Jesus has now become the cornerstone of the church, of the new temple, the new Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, all built on this Jesus. You can't get rid of him. Secondly, you can't stop Jesus because you will be broken yourself when you try. There's an ancient Jewish proverb that I ran across in Midrash Esther. It says, if a stone falls on a pot, that is a clay pot, if a stone falls on a pot, alas for the pot. If the pot falls on a stone, alas for the pot. <laughs> Either way, you see, the pot breaks, not the stone. And so it is with Christ. Jesus picks up the second stone metaphor from Isaiah chapter 8, where we read that he will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. But the irony of it is that only being broken by this stumbling stone can anyone be saved. Jesus himself said, whoever seeks to save his life is going to lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will save it. So Paul explained in Romans 9, the Jews had tried so hard to establish their own righteousness and they failed. They stumbled over Jesus. The stone laid in Zion causes men to stumble, just like Isaiah wrote. But those who fall and then in their brokenness look up and see that he's the Savior they will never be put to shame. You just can't stop Jesus. The best thing that can happen to you is that in stumbling over him, that, that it might bring you to the end of yourself, that you might be broken and desperate and look and find that he's the Savior. Finally, th third, you can't stop Jesus because his kingdom will eventually destroy all others. Now, nothing sounds more absurd than this to modern people. If you go out in the street and talk to someone and tell them that you believe when they ask you about your politics, you believe that the kingdom of God with Jesus as the king is going to, is going to be the predominant kingdom that will, will, will cover the whole earth. They will only laugh in your face. But you see, we're just like the people back in, in Babylon. God's holy nation the worship of God in Jerusalem had long since been destroyed. 
Only some exiles and prisoners of war even remembered those old days and clung to those old things. But Babylon had a mighty new king named Nebuchadnezzar, a fearsome king who destroyed whoever he wanted to destroy and rule that whole area of the world. And then as we read in Daniel chapter 2, one night King Nebuchadnezzar had a troubling dream, which he could not figure out what it was really about. In his dream, he saw a huge statue made, made, made of uh, gold at the head and then, and then silver and then bronze and then the feet, the legs of iron and the feet of iron mixed with clay. And while he was watching, suddenly there was a stone that uh, 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 broke off a mountain, was uh, carved out of a mountain, not by any person. And it began to roll toward the statue. And when it hit the statue, it blew the statue to oblivion into little pieces that the wind blew off like chaff. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't figure out what that meant. And so he called a young Hebrew that had been taken from his homeland named Daniel, who had a reputation of explaining such things. And Daniel said, well, here's the, here's the explanation. The statue represents you, Nebuchadnezzar. And all as the head and all the succeeding nations that will follow you. But the rock represents the coming of Messiah, the coming of the kingdom of God. Listen to how the Spirit says it in Daniel 2. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. He will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end but it will itself endure forever and that's exactly what jesus explained in his third use of this stone metaphor in the end of verse 18 he on whom the stone falls will be crushed you can't stop Jesus because he is the stone that will eventually destroy all the kingdoms of the earth. Michael Card skillfully put this all together in the chorus of a song called Scandalon a few years ago. He will be the truth that will offend them one and all. A stone that makes men stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Many will be broken so that he can make them whole. And many will be crushed and lose their own soul. What we have here is not just a parable about the development of Jewish history, though it is that. It's not just a parable le teaching leaders to be accountable for what they've been entrusted with, though it is that. It's not even just a parable predicting the death of Jesus, though it is that too. Here we have truth which the Spirit has preserved for us today. Here we learn that in spite of the desires of our sinful hearts, in spite of the constant voices prompting us from the world around us, we are not the owners. We are only tenants in God's world. God owns it all. God owns your very life. And then secondly, here we also learn that you can't stop Jesus. He's the one 
who was rejected, who has now become the cornerstone of all that God is building in the world. He is the rock of stumbling which will cause, which will trip you up, which is our only hope of coming to our senses and being saved. And he is the rock not cut by hands, which will ultimately destroy all the kingdoms of the world. So again this morning, I call you to come to Jesus. Run to him for mercy. Trust him to forgive and restore your soul and rest in him no matter how hopeless the world might look this morning. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word, for this story that Jesus told that uh, resonates here with us so many years later as its truth still stands and we see how it's been applied understand how it will be applied will give us hearts to hear ears to listen a will to do what you said thank you for your promises that surround even your promise of judgment your promise of mercy Thank you, Lord, that we don't just have the promise of the world paying the price for crucifying your son, but that the promise is that because he was crucified, we who, are, who share in the guilt can go free and be saved and forgiven because he took our punishment. Oh, Lord, may we flee to you for grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.